sermon title is All You Care to Eat. As a pastor, I realize it's a dangerous thing to preach about food uh, because you'll have a lot of people beginning to get a little antsy and ready to get out of here and get some food in their stomachs. If you're like me, perhaps you have pondered often the difference between all you can eat and all you care to eat. Sometimes you'll see restaurants advertise one of the two, and I thought, is there a distinction at all? Um, in my mind, I think of all you care to eat means you can eat until you want to stop. You might say, you know, I could eat more, but I really don't feel like eating any more, so it's all you care to eat. Whereas all you can eat sounds like a challenge to me. It's like, I really don't want to eat anymore, but there's a little pocket in the corner of my stomach. I feel like there's no food there, and so the challenge is all I can eat, I'll eat until I can't eat another bite. Uh, but I went to Google in search of uh, the difference, and one website described it like this. said, all you can eat is typically a self-service buffet style, like Golden Corral or Giovanni's. It's up there, and you go up, and you serve yourself. That's all you can eat. Whereas all you care to eat, this website said, is when people serve you. They bring the food to you. And this morning, as we continue our sermon series through John's Gospel, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, we find her today, Jesus serves an all-you-care-to-eat meal to those who are hungry. He brings the food to them. But this is a message more than meeting physical needs, as important as that is. It's a message with a deeper meaning. And it is this, come to Christ for the spiritual satisfaction that he alone provides. As Jesus serves to us the bread of life, nothing else can satisfy the hunger of your soul like Christ. So come to him for the spiritual satisfaction that he alone provides. I want to invite you to stand if you're able in reverence for the reading of God's holy word as we look collectively at John chapter 6. I'll be reading starting at verse 1. These words written by John the Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him and said, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, 
withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for our time here today already, lifting up prayers to you, singing songs of praise about Christ who came into this world to save sinners like us. Father, we pray that as we come to this familiar text of Scripture, Lord, you would open our eyes to see the truth contained there for us. Spiritually, Lord, we are hungry and nothing this world provides can satisfy that need. The Christ alone, the bread of life, provides for our hunger in a way that nothing else can. And so today we pray each and every one of us will have received the bread that Christ provides. Lord, those who have not yet, we pray that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. Holy Spirit, work through the power that you alone have to bring us more like Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We are in the midst of what many call the festival cycle of John's gospel. Because the events that John records for us over the next several chapters are all centered around feasts or holy days on the Jewish calendar. We saw back in chapter 5, it was on a Sabbath day when Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. The common theme throughout these chapters is conflict. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 in some ways mirror one another because we find there that there is a problem, a lame man, a hungry group of people, and then Jesus through a miracle provides and meets those needs, raising the lame man, giving him his ability to walk again, Jesus feeding the 5,000, followed by a lengthy discourse from the Lord in which he explains the spiritual significance of the miracle. Chapter 6 in John's Gospel is particularly significant because we have in here back-to-back signs at the beginning of the chapter. We've already seen three of these signs recorded specifically by John. We see turning the water to wine. We see the healing of the nobleman's son and, of course, the uh, uh, giving the, the uh, strength to walk back to the lame man the pool of Bethesda. Chapter 6, we see the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. Out of the seven signs that John records, uh, uh, number four and five show up in this chapter. So, very significant uh, part of Scripture. Begins with the strategical setting in the first four verses. To truly understand what's happening in this chapter, we have to see the strategical setting. The Apostle John provides the necessary info these first four verses. And it's important to remember he's an eyewitness to these things. John himself was there and it's important to remember there were 5,000 people that were there and as John was writing this that undoubtedly many if not most of those who were there that day and present can testify to the truth of what happened. We see the geography of the sign verses 1 and 3. It says Jesus went away perhaps going on a retreat setting with his disciples to teach them alone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is probably the east side of the sea uh, in modern day times known as the Golan Heights. Some of y'all may have remember hearing that through uh, news reports in the last few decades. The Sea of Galilee. So here we find Jesus back in the northern region 
of Israel. In the past couple chapters, we've seen him down in Judea in the southern part, Jerusalem. Today, he's back in the northern part. And when we read the other gospel accounts of Jesus' life, they all three point to this event as really the ending of his ministry in the north. And then he begins moving towards uh, his completion work there in Jerusalem, of course, the crucifixion. But we read here in verse 3, he went up on the mountain. The mountain in the Old Testament and mountain in, in uh, the Gospels is typically a place for people to encounter God. As God, God is high and exalted and the mountains are typically the highest places that we can uh, get to on earth that many times we see people encountering God on mountaintops. And there Jesus sat down with his disciples. The, the seating was a sign of authority uh, for the teacher. So that's the geography, where Jesus was in the north, on the mountain, uh, to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. It's really a, a desert area. Um, and that's where we find Jesus and his disciples. We see also the chronology of the sign, the chronology of when Jesus fed the 5,000. Verse 4 says, The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. There's no way to truly understand and interpret the events of this chapter without understanding it was Passover time. It was the appointed time for the Jews to remember the exodus from Egypt. That's what the holiday of Passover was about, to remember the Jews were enslaved uh, in Egypt. and They cried out to God for a deliverer, and God sent Moses to bring them out of Egypt, the exodus out of of Egypt into the promised land. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb, the, the spreading of the blood on the doorposts as a sign that these were people covered by the blood that God provides. We see the crossing, the parting of the Red Sea, God feeding his people with the manna from heaven throughout their wilderness journey through the deserts until ultimately God brought them safely into the promised land. So the Passover holiday remembers all of that. And that's the time when this event took place. Remembering the exodus of God bringing his people out of slavery and bringing them to the promised land and all the miracles that took place. Which then leads to also the theology. The theology of the sign. Verse 2 says there's a large crowd that followed him. And we think, man, that's a good thing, right? It, we, a lot of people following Jesus. But we also see that people can claim to follow Jesus, but with the wrong motives. Selfish motives. And that's what we see in verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Remember what's the point of a sign? A sign points to something. A sign leads you to where you need to go. The ultimate destination is not the sign but where the sign leads. And the signs in John's Gospels are meant to inspire faith in Christ. The miracles are meant to lead the individual to put their saving trust in the Lord Jesus alone for salvation. That was the point of the signs. And the people here were caught up. They were stuck at the signs. Man, these are miracles taking place. Let's, let's go see some more miracles. Let's go be wowed. Let's go be shocked by what he's going to do next instead of taking that next step of saving faith. 
they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. They were impressed by the healing and thinking, what can he give me? What do I have going on wrong in my life right now? What's hurting? Um, what's lacking? Uh, what would make me happy? What would make me more comfortable? And let me see if this Jesus will fix what I believe are my problems. But he came to solve the greatest of all problems, our soul's salvation, that we are headed to hell because we are sinners, and only he, through his death and resurrection, can bring us into a right relationship with God. But these people saw the signs, but they did not see the Savior and the saving work that he came to do. Now, I feel sorry for Jesus and the disciples here. They, they went away to be by themselves so they could have a retreat, and all these people begin to crowd up, and retreat time is over. And there's no time for rest. And there's time for ministry to take place. And here we see Jesus performing that. Maybe you've seen the commercials recently for the new Mustang. And they say it's new and improved. It's no longer gasoline-powered. It's now electric. It's no longer a sports car. It's now an SUV. And you wonder, is that really improved? <laughs> it's definitely new. I don't, I don't necessarily call that improved. It's hard to improve a classic, what people are used to, what people are familiar with. People of Jesus' day, of course, were familiar with Moses and the law of Moses. Remember the ending of chapter 5? Like The verse is literally right before John records this. Verse 45, he says, Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you've set your hope. In other words, we believe that following the law that Moses gave will make us right with God. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. If you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words. And immediately he leads his readers to its Passover time when we remember and celebrate what Moses did for God's people. And that's the strategical setting. And it's how we understand the rest of the chapter. A new Moses is here. In fact, a a better Moses is here. And John's already pointed us towards that back in chapter 1, verse 17, when John writes these words, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses did the work that he was sent to do. Jesus came to fulfill what Moses wrote about and usher in a new exodus. And that's what we see taking place here. The strategical setting. And then verses 5 through 13, we see the supernatural solution. Solution. Once again, a problem develops, and then a sign takes place. And that sign is meant to inspire and drive the individuals to saving faith in Christ. A supernatural solution. Verses 5 through 7, we read about the limited means. The limited means... Therefore Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him. I think it's evidence of the Lord's compassion. There he was to have a retreat, large crowds coming. He sees this as an opportunity given to him by the Father, and he seeks to, to minister to those. We read in the other gospel accounts that on that occasion, Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. He healed many who were sick. 
And so he spent the entire day serving them as a large crowd was coming to him. Remember the place where he was located there by the Sea of Galilee. We also know at the time of Passover, many, many pilgrims came from outside of the area, and, and typically they would follow that, that pathway. So maybe there were many people that were on their way to Jerusalem. They heard about Jesus, and they heard about his ministry. Let's go check him out. And they show up, and they spend all day listening to him and all day watching the miracles. And it comes time to eat, and they're like, oh, wait a minute, we weren't, we weren't really prepared. <laughs> we didn't pack a lunch. We didn't realize that he was going to keep us here all day. So there was limited means. He asked Philip, why Philip? Because Bethsaida was where Philip was from, which was a nearby village. And so, you know, Philip, you're, you're the local guy here. Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? They're hungry. We need to feed them. Where are we going to buy bread? Verse 6 says he was saying this to test them, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. It wasn't that Jesus was caught off guard. Like, oh, I wasn't really prepared for this. Now what we gonna we gotta buy these people bread. You know, they're gonna be they're gonna be angry, their stomachs are growling, and they're gonna start grumbling, and we gotta do something. What are we gonna do? Jesus himself knew already what he was intending to do, but he was trying to test Philip. Philip, do you truly understand who I am and do you truly understand what I am able to do? Do you truly understand what I have come to do yet? Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii. Denarii was basically a day's wage. And so he's saying 200 days worth, about eight months worth of salary. Eight months worth of salary is not sufficient for them, for everyone to even receive a little. If we had eight months worth of my salary, everybody couldn't even get a little morsel. How's that going to satisfy their needs? There was limited means, insufficient. Then we see the limited materials, verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. We think, well, maybe. Philip didn't pass the test, but here, maybe Andrew does. But then he goes on to say, what are these for so many people? There's no way. We don't have the materials necessary to meet this need. By the way, some people will see in this scenario the five barley loaves and the two fish that the lad had. The five barley loaves, barley bread, was what the poor people ate. So this was a, a, a poor young man Little, basically little crackers. The two fish were usually uh, pickled, uh, preserved, kind of like sardines. In order to uh, be preserved, you're going to pack fish around all day. They better have some preservation to them. And so this is like meager little meal here, like Lunchables or something, little crackers and a little preserved piece of meat. And that was all this kid had. And some read this and they say, man... Let's be inspired by this young man. He is donating his lunch. But when you read that here, you don't, it doesn't necessarily say that. We've got this picture in our head of little Oliver uh, Twist coming up and saying, Here, sir, please take my lunch and share that with everyone. Take my bread, take my fish. 
good sir. It could be that it could be that uh, Andrew saw this young man had his little lunch trying to stash away. Here, kid, give me that. The Lord has need of this. And the little kid's like, no, no, don't take my lunch. We don't know the motive behind and, and how the lunch was obtained. But there was uh, five little crackers, two sardine fish, and Andrew saying, it's not enough. It's not enough. These people have a need. We can't meet this need by human means. It's another way of saying man lacks the necessary, necessary resources and the necessary ability to see what the deepest problem truly is. Man can't save himself. No matter how much he tries, the, the means and the materials are, are limited, and man can only do so much, man cannot save himself. The pathway to salvation must be supernatural. And that's what we see in the lack of faith in these disciples. We can't do it, Lord. You cannot do it through our efforts, Lord. Then we see the limitless miracle take place, verses 10 through 13. This is the only miracle beside the resurrection. This is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four record the feeding of the 5,000. And it's the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, it's the only miracle that all four speak of. It was a significant event. It was significant because of the size of the crowd, how many people witnessed this. We're told it's 5,000 men. I believe it's Matthew that points out that the women and children weren't even recorded. I don't know why they weren't recorded because typically, I know we as Baptists like to inflate the numbers. You know, hey, she's pregnant. Let's count the child in the womb as one of the people that attended. 5,000 people, 5,000 men. Some estimate, well, if their wives were there, that could be 10,000. If they had one child, that's 15,000. And some scholars estimate it could be anywhere up to 20, 25,000 people. It's a Rupp Arena, well, a typical Rupp Arena-sized crowd. Not what we've seen lately. But a lot of people, thousands and thousands of people, which is amazing, the Lord's ability to draw crowds and captivate the crowds and keep them there all day. Where they don't even think about, hey, I'm hungry. I wish this guy would shut up. He was there teaching and they were listening and they were hanging on every word. And there was that many people that witnessed this one miracle. But not only did they witness it, they all lived it. See, many of the miracles that he did was on one person or, or two people. 5,000 plus estimates up to maybe 20,000 people experienced and ate the food. They lived it. They were touched by the miracle. And all four gospel writers saw the significance of this moment. And they recorded for us this limitless miracle, this supernatural sign. Something un of, uh, not of this world took place in this. This miracle teaches us, first of all, the sovereignty of Christ. 
sovereignty, the creative miracle. He was able to make bread and fish that should not have been there. He was able to take what was there and and duplicate that, reproduce that, and in essence creating new bread, new crackers, and new fish. Who can create something out of nothing? Only God alone. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3. Apart from Him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus, as God in the flesh, is able through His sovereignty to create and give life and to make things where there were no things. The sovereignty of Christ. Verse 10, He says, Have the people sit down. The disciples were like, Send them home. And Jesus said, Set them down. Have the people sit down and says there were there was much grass in the place. Wait a minute, preacher, you said it was a desert. The Golden Heights area, typically around the, the, the year is, is desert area, but in the spring, during which time Passover is celebrated, during the spring there is grass in the region before the summer temperatures come and burn all the grass away. So there in the spring there was much grass. The men sat down in number about 5,000, and so upwards of anywhere 10, 15, 20,000 people there. And Jesus there on top of the mountain, and the people were there to encounter God. And that's what they do through the sovereignty of Christ. He then took the loaves, he took the crackers, having given thanks. The Greek word, we get the word Eucharist from, which is sometimes a, a name that some churches call the Lord's Supper. So in some ways, this is a, a, a prefiguring type of the Lord's Supper. After giving thanks, he distributed those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, and as much as they wanted. It was a sovereign work of Christ. It was a miracle. There's no earthly explanation to this. It's not a, a moral lesson on the importance of sharing. Because if you're sharing, you don't get as much as you want. You have as much as you want. Somebody doesn't have something that you have, and then you share, and then you don't have as much as you want anymore. So obviously it's not teaching that. It was sharing. They didn't have as much as they wanted. And liberal scholars, they'll come to this text and say, something else must be taking place. People brought their lunches but they were greedy and selfish they didn't want to share here this young man steps forward and says here Lord take my lunch give it to someone who doesn't have and people were inspired by that young man's selflessness and they said we need to be more like that lad here I'm going to give some of my lunch away too and next thing you know it everybody that had shared with those who didn't have and everybody ate And that's the moral of the story. Nothing miraculous took place. Scholars will say, liberal scholars, who do not believe in the supernatural. Others say perhaps there was a cave nearby and and Jesus had stashed an abundance of food and they had kind of a, a, a supply chain going on where they were bringing it out. And through an act of duplicity, Jesus duped those people into believing a miracle took place. Man, people go to such far extremes to try to explain away the fact that 5,000 plus people said, you know what, I was there, and I ate, 
And I can testify it all came out of nothing. This man did a miracle, and I can vouch for that. People would say the sovereignty of Christ is on display. He is able to do what no one else can do. But also the sufficiency of Christ. Sufficiency, verse 12. When they were filled, when the the empty places of their stomach were all filled up once again, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. There was so much food. Everybody ate. Thousands of people ate. They were all filled. They had as much as they wanted. And then there was leftovers. That's how you know you've been to a good potluck when there's plenty of leftovers. We always worry there's not going to be enough food. Oh, no, there's not going to be enough food. And there's always way more than enough food. And then it's like, here, please take this home with you. No, I don't want to take it. Here, take it. There was leftover fragments. Everybody had their full. There was more than enough. And Jesus said, gather it up so that nothing will be lost. In the hands of Jesus, nothing is lost. We sang earlier about his grip on me. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. The sufficiency of Christ. He is able to take what is his and nothing is lost. Nothing in his hands is lost. More than enough, they gathered them up, and guess what? There was 12 baskets. Disciples did all the distributing. Then it was time for them to eat. Each one of them had a basket full. The sufficiency of Christ. All those who come to him to satisfy the hunger of their souls, there is enough grace of Christ to satisfy anyone and everyone who comes to him in faith. Twelve baskets, twelve disciples that symbolize the twelve tribes of Israel, the people of God. The true people of God are those who are in Christ. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you're the people of God. And He provides through His miraculous means, through His body and through His blood shed on the cross, He provides more than enough sufficiency for His people and His people are preserved. None of His people are lost. None of His people are left behind. Nothing of His grace is wasted. Enough for everyone. This past week I went shopping in the grocery store and made the mistake of going down the, uh, the ice cream aisle and the treat aisle there and saw that there were some popsicles on sale. Not your ordinary popsicles. These are the fruit and juice popsicles. Had the real strawberries inside the popsicles. The good stuff, it was on sale. I wouldn't bought it if it wasn't on sale. I'm cheap. So it was on sale, good deal. I bought it, brought it home, put it in the freezer, didn't tell nobody. And then within a day or two, I'd seen that uh, Jack had one. You know, the little boy that Nancy watches, he had one. And so either he found it or she found it and gave it to him. He ate on a little bit and dropped it on the floor. And I was like, no. <laughs> so I made the decision, if I'm going to eat any of these, I'd better get one now. Because if it sits in there too long, I ain't going to get one. So luckily I ate my one popsicle out of the box and the fruit and juice bar and the rest of them. Or either eaten or dropped on the floor after that. Before it's all gone. 
because there's a limited supply. It's not so with the Lord's grace. And this miraculous feeding shows us they all ate, they all had their full, they all had their fill. There was leftover fragments, and there was twelve baskets symbolizing His grace is sufficient for His people. No one's left behind. Nothing is lost. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. You come here today and you think, I need to be saved, I'm lost, but there's no hope for me. No way Jesus Christ would ever forgive me. No way there's, there's not enough grace for me. And this historical event tells you otherwise. Put your faith in Christ. There is more than enough grace for you. His grace is sufficient. Why not today? This may be your last opportunity. This may be the last chance you are served the grace of the Lord. And you can either receive it, you can decline it, run the risk that you will spend all eternity separated from God in the place the Bible calls hell. There's so much grace that's ready for you. It's ready to satisfy the longing of your soul. Nothing in this world could satisfy you but Christ. And there's enough available today it's a boundless grace will you shun the Lord today the supernatural solution to the people's hunger was the bread and the fish the supernatural solution to your soul's hunger is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus supernatural solution finally we see the spiritual short sightedness short sightedness we're all trying to spell that and you can't see the screen on the wall because you're short-sighted. You can't see that far. You can make the font bigger, preacher. Short-sightedness. That's a common theme in John's gospel. People can't see the truth because people are in the dark. We're in here in the dark. You can't see anything. These people, spirits that were in the dark. And John the Baptist said people love the darkness. They'd rather stay in the dark. They'd rather not see the truth of Christ because they see the truth of Christ and they're convicted of their sin and they better change their lives they love sin they're going to pay the price for that too one day spiritual short sightedness people they had a desire for a temporal leader a temporal leader one in the here and the now here on earth verse 14 therefore when the people saw the sign they were hung up on the sign just like, just like they were back in verse 2. They saw the sign which he had performed and there was no debate, there was no doubt. They saw it, they lived it. A miracle took place. Either you believe it or don't, but these people believed it. When they saw the sign which he had performed, they said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world which of course Jesus is prophet, priest, king and so it's not that they were wrong in their assessments but they were limited in their assessments they thought here is, here's another prophet Moses spoke about this Deuteronomy 18.15 he said there's going to come another prophet like me and these people said there's another Moses what did Moses do? Moses freed the people from the tyranny of the oppressors in Egypt we got some got some tyrants here in Rome the new Moses is here he's going to free us from Rome 
He's a political revolutionary, and he's proven he's got the power to do it. We're going to live in a welfare state. Jesus is just going to meet all of our needs. He's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to give us all the food we want. He's going to secure us here in our borders. What more do we need? We don't need anything else other than that. Full, belly, full bellies and no, no tyrants telling us what to do. That's all we need. That's what they wanted. That's all they wanted. And so they saw, through short-sightedness, they saw here the opportunity. Let's come and make this guy king. Verse 15 says, they were intending to come and take him by force if necessary. If this guy don't line up with our platform, there's more of us than him, we're going to make him king, and we're going to dare the Romans to do anything about it. King Jesus, come to fill our bellies. He's going to kick your butts. King Jesus, let's make him king. A temporal leader. All they wanted was someone to fix their earthly problems. And there's so many Christians today look at Jesus like that, like he's Santa Claus. Just give me what I want, a genie in the bottle. Just make me rich. Keep me healthy. Don't ever let me get sick. If I get sick, Lord Jesus, you're going to heal me. I'm going to claim your name, and you're automatically, you're required to heal me. That prosperity gospel. So many people get sucked into that. Because all they see is their temporal needs, their temporal desires, and they want someone to fix that. You do that, Jesus, then maybe I'll follow you. That's what these people wanted. But we see the destiny of the true Lord in verse 15. Jesus perceiving they were coming to take him by force and making king. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew the, the, the motives and the aspirations of these people were not what they needed to be. Jesus perceived that, and he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. That's the emphasis. This time it wasn't the disciples there. He, he completely got out of there. He didn't want anything that this crowd was trying to do with him. He didn't want his disciples to, to try to tell him what he needed to do. He was the sovereign Son of God come here to die on the cross for the sins of his people and nothing less than that was what he was going to do Satan tempted him early in his ministry to receive all of the kingdoms with a shortcut no cross just go straight to ruling over the kingdoms an easy pathway Jesus, all you got to do is bow down and worship me. All you got to do is meet the selfish desires of those around you, and they'll gladly worship you. You got to come to them on their terms. And if you'll come to them on their terms, then they'll make you king. But in reality, they're kings and queens, and you're just a puppet, you're just an instrument in their hands meet their needs and their wants his hour had not yet come he had resisted the temptation to rule without the cross he was sent by the father to be the Passover lamb that was to die and shed his blood to cover his people with the grace of God so that the wrath of God and the judgment of God would pass over them he came to be the bread of life that would bring salvation 
And nothing apart from his death on the cross, nothing apart from his resurrection would accomplish the mission the Father gave him to do. People come with their aspirations. Jesus rejected that. Edmund Clowney once wrote this, he would go to Jerusalem not to wield spear and bring judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and to bear the judgment. I thought that was a good paraphrase of what Christ came to do. He didn't come to be an earthly, temporal leader. He came to be the true Lord which required His sacrifice for our sins, our deepest need, our deepest hunger. Through His sacrifice and resurrection, we are saved. So come to Christ for the spiritual satisfaction that He alone provides. Nothing but Jesus. Nothing but Jesus will satisfy. Nothing but Jesus will bring you nothing but Jesus will bring you the satisfaction of your deepest needs. You sometimes will hear things advertised a money back guarantee. Now try this out. If you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. It's not going to cost you anything. Satisfaction guaranteed. We, we, we promise you'll be satisfied. And if you're not, then you can get out of the deal. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. See, Jesus doesn't have to offer a money-back guarantee. Well, try it out. If you don't, try, if you don't like what you find in me, then, then I'll let you go. And nothing. No, Jesus requires all in. If you're going to eat of the, the, the bread of life, it's going to require something of you. As Jesus here leads His people on the exodus through the desert, and as Jesus satisfies the needs of His people with the bread of life, so we too, if we follow Christ, we must follow Him through the desert as pilgrims in this land, as wanderers, as sojourners who have been rescued from the slavery of sin and on the pathway to final glory in the promised land. In the meantime, in this world, we will struggle and we will hunger and we turn to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, preserve us. Lord Jesus, protect us. Lord Jesus, bring us home. And it requires you to pick up your cross daily and follow after Him. The pathway to glory is suffering, and that was the case for Christ. The early disciples said they counted themselves, counted a blessing to be considered worthy of suffering in His name. Christ is the bread of life. Taste and see. There's no going back. You won't want to go back. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't settle for schemes that don't satisfy your soul. Earthly schemes, earthly ambitions, if you just do this, you'll be happy. Money, riches, power, fame. None of that stuff satisfies. Only Jesus can. All you care to eat as Jesus serves you the bread of life. Take and, and, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we walk today by faith and not by sight. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary. 
the things of this earth, the pleasures of this earth, they're all fleeting. They won't last. It's junk food. A quick fix. It's not going to take away our problems. It's not going to satisfy us forever. We're going to want more and more. What is seen is temporary. But what is unseen, that's eternal. And that's what Christ offers Himself as the bread of life. Lord God, I pray that we are not so short-sighted that we only focus on the here and the now. We only want to get glory in, in this life because one day we will die. We can't take anything with us. And all that matters in the end is do I belong to Christ or not? Father, I pray that we are not so foolish and sin doesn't make us so stupid that we fail to realize there's only one thing in this life that truly matters. Am I saved? Am I forgiven? Have I eaten of the bread of life that only Jesus gives? Is Christ in me? And am I in Christ? I pray today would be the day of salvation to those who have never taken that step. I pray today would be a glorious reminder to those of us who have. Jesus is enough, more than enough. And Jesus is worth it. In his name we pray. Amen. I'd like for everyone to stand.